Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. In this episode, we're talking with Aaron Parker from Edgewood Nursery, and we're going to be talking about breeding plants, specifically annuals, and the ideas around what we should be breeding, why we should be breeding it, and how do we make it a part of our identity and culture. So take a listen and tell us what you think. Aaron, thanks so much for coming on. Can you uh, introduce yourself to our audience, if you don't mind? Sure. My name is Aaron Parker, and I live in Wabanaki Territory, so-called Southern Maine, just outside of the big city, quote-unquote, Portland. So I'm in Falmouth, and I am a nurseryman and seed farmer at Edgewood Nursery, and I have lots of other things, too, that uh, we may or may not touch on, like I... uh, I'm an organizer for a free-to-pick community orchard called Mount Joy Orchard, and I uh, I do a podcast called Propaganda by the Seed. Awesome. Yeah, Propaganda by the Seed is um, one of the few podcasts that I have time to listen to these days. It's one of those things, and I'm sure you experience it. It's like you spend so much time doing podcasting stuff, it's hard to sit down and listen to other people do it. But you guys have a really great list of guests that you've had on. For sure. And I, I definitely appreciate the uh, the many times you have plugged us on Instagram and such. Uh, we've actually, I think, gained a lot of listeners that way. Awesome. Yeah. I'm, you know, it's one of those things. I listened to some of the episodes you guys do and I was like, ah, oh, I was going to do that like in like three years time. <laughs> but like for us, at least we have this like very successional process in the episodes. So it's like, yeah, I want to talk about that. But first, I need, I want to cover all this other stuff. So I'm glad you guys are doing it and you guys do a good job to the subject matter that you're talking about. So today, I wanted to specifically talk about plant breeding, specifically around this concept of like domesticated native plants and working with like crops that either exist or used to exist or are just not generally widely used for one reason or another. So I know this is something you do, and uh, I wanted to ask, like, what got you first interested in this idea? Um, well, a lot of things. For a while, there were some kind of different circles of, of plants that I was kind of focusing in on. And those circles were like medicinal plants, sort of classic Eurasian perennial vegetables that were, you know, maybe not mainstream popular, but familiar to a lot of people, stuff like sea kale. And then native plants, especially for their ecological value. Where I'm at now is wanting to really focus on the overlap of perennial vegetables and native plants. And I think there's a lot of plants that are in there that are really underutilized and very, very rare in cultivation. Um, Or if you do see them in cultivation, it's people who are sort of native plant nerds um, and are growing them exclusively for ecosystem benefits. And I think there's really a place to start moving some of our actual food needs towards these native plants that do have a, a lot of great ecosystem benefits and you know climate resiliency and a lot of a lot of great aspects to them. And there's a lot of really interesting possibilities for for breeding work as well because, a lot of these plants, there's been pretty much zero formal breeding work done, or sometimes there are people breeding them in Asia or Russia and not around here where they actually come from, uh, which is interesting. 
Yeah, I want to just chime in on that. It's so funny. I do, I spend a lot of time on ResearchGate for various reasons. If you look up like Black Locust, which is a tree that I'm interested in, like all of the research is from like either Germany or Japan, it seems like for some reason or another. It's just crazy because it's a Native American plant and we're the only ones not researching it. Yeah, so weird. And yeah, it's, it's very weird. What's going on with black locust in our part of the world where they're not historically known, but they're, they're not very far from where I live, their native range, is people are like, oh, it's an invasive species and it's like this big problem. And I'm like, I don't think it really is. And it has all these wonderful properties. Yeah. I mean, even just taking into account climate change. I would argue that at least here where I am, which is a couple zones warmer, while it might not be its native range, if we were to go back to pre-Columbian era, but climate change still happened, they would be basically native at this point if we came today. Yeah. So I think especially with black locust, that argument's kind of pointless. Yeah. And I mean, the whole idea of native plants is a, a tangled mess that we don't necessarily have to get into. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's extremely complicated and not something I feel like I have totally wrapped my head around. Yeah. And I think we have to be better to continue on this tangent just a little bit more about this idea of like invasives and like acknowledging that we might not have like a good or bad or even ambivalence. Like we can just be like, we don't know. <laughs> this is a novel situation. And obviously there are cases where it's like, yes, we do need to push back on invasives. But conversely, like, with something like a black locust, we just have to be like, yeah, we don't know. And we have to acknowledge that it's messy and there's room for a lot of those different opinions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I like, I don't want to see wetlands becoming all purple loose strife, but there's plenty of quote unquote invasive plants that are just, yeah, they've only been here a short time, but they don't really seem to be causing too much of a problem. There's a lot of, a lot of gray area, I think. Yeah. And to work our way back to the main subject, one of the plants that I'm aware of that there was some research done on, and it seems to have kind of built its status within like this very niche community is like ground nuts. I know LSU had been working on it in the, I believe, 70s. Uh, I should have checked this before we started recording, but yeah, I think it was in the early 70s or late 60s, they were, they were doing some research on it. And um, it's just interesting that there was this time when they recognized this value and then it just kind of disappeared. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of projects that got kind of started and never went anywhere. And that's, that's perfectly fine. And a lot of those sort of remnants of older breeding projects are a great place to start, you know, another round. Another example of that might be um, Illinois bundleflower, Desmanthus illinoensis, which is a very easy to grow plant and people are interested in as a fodder plant and as a nitrogen fixer. But I have heard rumors that the Land Institute, which does a lot of perennial crop breeding, was working on a non-shattering variety in the 70s. And it just kind of, they, they didn't get enough results to kind of justify continuing to work on that. Yeah. And I know Cornell had some really interesting research going on around trees. I talked to Steve Gabriel about it a while back. But yeah, I mean, the point is that there's been a lot of research done and then it just kind of gets lost if it's not as effective or if the novelty wears off on those crops. One of the things that I think about when we start talking about like groundnuts and all these other potential food, especially staple foods, is how do we make them accessible? So we can we can talk all we want about like 
these have the capacity to replace these giant monocrops that we use. But it's a little bit more complicated because you need to get buy-in from the public. The way I think about it is like food. How do we how do we make these more food accessible for like the general public that aren't like going to be adventurous eaters that are like, ooh, this is something that was on this landscape 300 years ago. I want to try eating it. Yeah, I, I think a good a good way to to kind of introduce these crops is to point towards the harmony where human food production and ecological benefit can be. So you you could be planting one of my favorites is uh, common milkweed, Asclepius syriaca, that is you know formerly a much maligned pasture weed, and now people are really starting to plant because it's the host food for monarch butterfly larvae. But it's also an excellent human food at several life stages. And so if you can get people who are already interested in gardening or already interested in changing the landscape to benefit the local ecology to also be like, and we do a little bit of foraging in this landscape and that foraging can start to turn into a little bit more of like a production horticulture. Also, I I think at least around here, there is a lot of, there's a whole sector that I have almost no interactions with, which is restaurants. And there's a lot of people doing interesting things with restaurants that do seem to kind of push, push new ingredients. And there are people who are much more innovative cooks than I'll ever be, you know, wanting to try something new, anything new. And a lot of these plants, even though they might be uh, even abundant in the landscape around, are, are definitely, you know, something novel to the cuisine of most people. So if somebody's listening and they're like, hey, you know, this is up my alley, I'm interested, but I don't know a lot about like botany or biology, is the idea of starting to incorporate some of these species or as we'll talk a little bit further, breeding these types of species to selectively breed, is that something accessible to like the average backyard gardener? I would say absolutely yes. Um, And basically any species that um, would be of interest is probably useful and worth growing in their existing state. It just might not be something that is going to be kind of ready to be a staple crop. So just sort of out of the box seeds you collected in the wild or purchased from whatever source, you're going to get a plant that is totally worth growing for a home gardener. And if you find the sort of connection with, with that plant where it's like, okay, this plant is growing pretty easily, you know, it, I'm successfully cultivating and I enjoy harvesting, then I feel like that you've kind of set the stage to take the next step of like, oh, you know, I can now recognize that out of these 10 milkweed plants, this one has like exceptional flavor. That's really cool. I'm going to like sow the next generation of seeds exclusively from this one selection and, and see what the next generation looks like. And that's really the first, the first steps of, of domestication. It's that simple. Like I remember being a kitten and like they would take plants like sunflowers and it was like, Hey, everyone plants a bunch of sunflowers, like all the kids. And it's like, pick the biggest head so you can have a bigger head next year. And whoever has the biggest one, like wins a prize or whatever. So like every year 
you'd be like basically all breeding your own variant of sunflower based on like which one happened to have that unique mm-hmm. characteristics. You know, I, I think this all ties into like, you know, how do, how do we understand and relate to these plants and more than just that one season that we actually harvest the seeds and replant them. And it's not just constantly buying from a source that's not connected to our landscape, not connected to our ecology or any of those types of things. Now, with your practices, do you traditionally, like if you're collecting milkweed or whatever it might be, do you try uh, planting in different sites to see if any plasticity shows new traits or anything like that? Yeah, I, I will usually try and plant in at least two sites, you know, across the sort of acre that I'm cultivating. A lot of that is often when I'm planting something new, especially nowadays, it's pretty hard to come by. So I don't, part of that is I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. Like if, if a plant doesn't succeed, then I might have to, you know, try and refine those seeds or whatever. But it's also like, okay, how does this plant, how are they going to do in full sun, really dry conditions? You know, maybe they'll act differently or do better or do worse in part shade. So that, that is definitely a, a aspect. And for shorter, that's more for perennials, for annuals, I will try and kind of bounce them around to different spots to see, see how that goes. Now with annuals, do you feel that in your experiences that it's something you can see that evolution happen like in a short time period? So like you, you were making the point about like milkweed. If you plant it from those seeds the next year, are you expecting that crop to be materially better? Or do you, is it something that you think about and you're like, in 5, 10, 20 years, I'll have the crop I really want? It, uh, at least with annuals, it can be a, a pretty short turnaround. I am not one to make really heavy selections generally. And you can kind of get you know, more dramatic results by making heavy selections, but everything comes at a cost. The cost might be if, if you made a, a heavy selection, meaning like, you know, you've got a hundred plants and you're only saving your choice seed from three of them, you're pushing that population through a really tight bottleneck genetically. And that could have unintended consequences down the line. Also, especially for annuals, you're only really observing one year when you're making that selection. So like last year was a really nice growing season for us. We had a lot of summer rain and lots of plants really flourished. And the the individuals that flourish in that rainy year might not be the genetics that are going to flourish in a in a tough dry year. I I tend to remove from the from the breeding population a rogue out a pretty small amount and with wild perennials that I'm more recently working with I've basically not made any selection pressure. I'm I'm still at the phase of building a, a reasonably broad gene pool of localized genetics and then kind of I'm going to go from there to see like okay do I want to leave this plant as is to preserve that local ecotype or do I want to either potentially make a split decision where I will either try and maintain this broad gene pool and then also either make clonal selections or make a different breeding population to you know, have in- increased production of whatever I want to harvest or just stick with, with the genetics as they are. 
Hey there, it's Andy from the Porporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. So that brings up a really interesting point about domestication. And, you know, you're walking this fine line between local native species and a domestic, by definition, domestic plants need us to continue to exist. And if we're doing breeding and we're thinking about selectively breeding, we can do that while still allowing plants to not be necessarily domestic. So, you know, if you're trying to breed things for your local ecology or thinking about like climate change and breeding for plants that'll be more resilient under climate change. That's a different process. And I'm curious about your thoughts about um, our role in doing stuff like that and framing up these plants to be ready for climate change. Yeah. And I, I think we're at an interesting point and in a interesting sort of geographic position to be doing that. And I th- there's several plants that I am working with. Uh, pawpaw would be a, a great example of like pawpaw probably wouldn't have really succeeded here like even 50 years ago. But at least for me, Papa has been very reliable and I see them as being really a a good choice for a a tree crop uh, with climate change in mind. They really thrive on summer heat, which we're just going to keep getting more and more of. And they bloom late enough that, you know, late late frosts are hopefully not going to be too much of an issue with them. And it's a tree I'd like to see getting out there into the landscape more and more. Pawpaws are the same here. Like I, I've got some and they're, they're a great tree and they, they're a great understory fruiting tree, which is not super rare, but rare enough that they also do well under black walnuts. So they're, they're just a very unique tree that is specially designed, especially here on the East Coast, where we could utilize them really well. Yeah. And there is this caveat of climate change hasn't progressed so much that we don't still have severe cold snaps. So I'm not really planting much stuff that's generally considered like a solid zone six or zone seven. It's pretty likely that that time will come when it, we just don't get those winter cold snaps anymore. But for now, I'm, I'm focusing on plants like the pawpaw that can, that can take that negative 20 Fahrenheit for a day or two, um, and still, you know, persist, um, but are well adapted to also it's like, oh, it's going to be a hundred for several days in a row. Yeah. My crop that I've been focusing on for trees is primarily figs because they're like a zone seven, eight, and we're on the six B seven, a line. Yeah. So, uh, they're, they're right on the edge and obviously like figs are great eating. So it's hard not to want them. So I've been just like, oh, and <laughs> so easy to propagate in so many varieties yeah. too. They're, they're great trees. And, uh, I just try to been trying to see how hardy some of them can be and, uh, trying to introduce some new genetics and just see what happens because 
I would like them to be here. And I'm sure in 20 years, they will be, um, they won't need any maintenance to, to keep them alive here. So if you already yeah. get them in the ground and hardy, it's going to be a, a much more delicious future. <laughs> yeah, totally. And pigs are amazingly adaptable. My friend Jesse Stevens grows them in zone 4B. He must have to cover them or leaf them or yeah. something. Yeah, he like pins them to the ground with a, a bag of wood chips and covers them up. Yeah, that's, um, I used to do that. And it was just like, you know what, let me just see. They're, they're old enough now. Unless I see that it's going to be a real cold snap. I, I try not to do anything. And they've been dying back to the roots, but I, I'm convinced eventually they'll get hardy enough just from having deeper roots. Not that they have very deep roots. They're pretty shallow rooted. I'm just, I'm curious to see how they do and use them kind of as a gauge for how the winters are changing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have seen some interesting, potentially epigenetic hardiness changes in plants, mostly in, uh, I can't remember the common name, but uh, Diospyros lotus, which is a um, persimmon variety, and in pawpaws where plant out a young plant and it gets like tip damage or winter kill dying back for the first couple of winters and then it seems to entirely overcome those issues yeah it's cool to see how plants can mutate in that way you know something you think well it's always died back why wouldn't it do it again and they'll, they'll sometimes they'll do it yeah there's a lot of resiliency in the way plants manage new landscapes pretty neat stuff You've mentioned a couple, but I'm curious what crops in particular that you're interested in that maybe you're working with now or that you want to work with in the future and um, why you are interested in those specific ones. Yep. Uh, there's there's so many. Um, <laughs> Apios is is one that like, you know, it has a pretty wide acceptance that this is a plant with a lot of potential as a food crop and a lot of history of human cultivation pre-colonization. And, and that's kind of going to be true pretty broadly. When we think of the ecology pre-Europeans getting here, my, my understanding is that most of, most of this area was essentially a horticultural landscape. It was broadly managed, and the sort of culture of that management was to make selections and on many, you know, many different species widely across the landscape, but they were sort of managed with a, a fairly light selection pressure. And so you can see that in, you know, sort of remnant populations that have kind of pretty obvious selections by humans in, in Apios, in Caria, so like hickories and pecans. And I, I think there's a lot of useful useful plants out there on the landscape that have already had some degree of human selection. And a lot of that, that selection has been somewhat lost because over the colonized colonization period, the last 500 years or whatever, those changes that were made by indigenous people didn't necessarily serve on an untended landscape. So some of those species have at least partially reverted, but we can we can find the remnant genetics and kind of foster those. So some examples of that are groundnuts, apios, caria, hickories. Helianthus stromosus is a species that really interests me. And that's the sort of northeastern version of uh, Helianthus tuberosus or the sunchoke. I got a variety a few years ago called Chinese, which is weird because it's 
a you know a species that comes from this part of the world and you know does not exist in the wild in China. Yeah, it's from Canada, right? Originally, um, Canada, Eastern U.S. Yeah, I, yeah. I thought it was pretty far north and then worked its way down. I I only basically know what's on the uh, the like Bonap map, but that it shows it as you know being sort of broadly in in the eastern Turtle Island. But apparently this species was brought to Asia where they did some degree of breeding work. And this one variety that I have produces huge spindle-shaped tubers, very smooth, very productive. You know, we're talking five to 10 pounds of tuber production per plant. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And like sunchokes are productive as it is. So yeah, and and some of these tubers are even significantly larger than the largest sunchokes I've ever seen. I, I think my largest single tuber was over 13 ounces, over a foot long. And this plant, you know, is covered in beautiful flowers late in the season, co- covered in pollinators, has lots of specialist insect associations. Um, so that's one that I'm really excited about, and. It's actually a great example species because the only problem that I really see with this cultivar Chinese is way too spready. The stolons, which are like the stems that the tubers grow on, are far too long to be an easily manageable cultivated species. So you get this huge plant, you know, it can be eight feet tall, great production, but you've got to disturb a lot of soil to get those tubers and they're, you know, really tough, really aggressive plants, which can be great in some circumstances, but in a garden, you know, they want to run all over the place. So you can deal with that using rhizome barriers, but as breeding opportunity, you know, looking for seedlings of that plant with much shorter stolons is probably your number one breeding goal. And I just happened to get lucky in that case where I had, you know, this big tall plant and it blew over in a windstorm, broke the stem and it was late in the air. So I just kind of like cut it down and like tossed it to the side. And it's like, okay, that's, that's mulch now. And the next year, a new plant popped up out of that debris. And I was like, oh shit, like maybe, uh, you know, maybe a rodent moved a tuber over there. But the morphology of the tubers was totally different. And when I started looking at the plant, the morphology of the stems and leaves was actually significantly different as well. Um, And I'm fairly certain that that Helianthus stromosis Chinese crossed with one of the other sunchokes that I was growing. And now I've got this chance seedling, which I call cluster, and it has the exact opposite stolons. All the tubers are right at the base of the plant. They don't move at all and can be harvested very effectively with minimal soil disturbance. That's awesome. Sometimes you get lucky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I, I, I don't expect that many, you know, basically win, winning the genetic lottery like that, but it is extremely heartening to know like, oh, okay, this is just, you know, a gift basically. And this, this can happen. And the more, the more you plant out those seeds and the more you observe carefully, the more likely it's to happen. I have a lot of hope, or I try to have a lot of hope for 
utilizing a lot of these crops and thinking about how how do we integrate them into our food ways to justify growing them because that's one of the things that I struggle with is like you know you can you can harvest a lot of foods fairly easily foraging you know acorns is a really great example and that that's great but if we can't do anything more than make them a novelty then it's it, it's I don't want to say pointless but like without becoming a meaningful part of people's diets it's not really addressing the root cause of a lot of our food problems you know in our ecological destruction and things like that so i i, I want to know you know with all the work you're doing and all the investment in time and all these other things you know do you do you see a future in which these crops are actually at least in our lifetime like a meaningful part of people's diets yes i think and it's it's a little bit hard to tell where where that's going to go and is kind of tied up in how I, I I don't want to be a doomer or anything but how how the apocalypse plays out fair because I think a lot of these crops are very resilient potentially and have a real role to play in making human food production kind of better for everyone, both us and all living things on the planet. I, I guess I would say I, I see a lot of these crops being a major part of the diet in a brighter future. That's that's a real possibility, but it's going to take a lot of work to get there. Yeah, I think about it like, you know, with craft beer. I, I, I feel like I fall back on this example of craft beer for like a lot of things in my life for some reason. The thing about craft beer that's unique is like this idea of like the interest is that it becomes very specific to place. And I, I imagine that as we try to make these foods attractive, the way to do that is to tie it to place where it's like you have craft beer from this place, you know, in Boston, it's like everything's somehow tied to the, you know, for example, one of the breweries that's near me would do like stuff with like various ocean material goods, adding oysters or whatever to their beer, because it's like, well, you're on the coast, like that's, you know, you're utilizing the local ingredients. And I imagine with a lot of the locavore movement, at this point, local food doesn't mean place, it means grown nearby, it has nothing to do with the local place itself. So the next step in that process would be to identify plants that are native to that area and saying, hey, not only is it grown here, but it's from here. This is the food of the landscape, the same way wine is, the same way, like I said, craft beer has kind of moved in that direction. So really probably wine is the better example than craft beer in this case. But like making that the point that's important and giving it more meaning than just being like, yeah, you can buy a bag of potatoes, but let's talk about groundnuts and why that might be a better option. Yeah, totally. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And that, you know, that really does tie in with like why, why these plants have potentially a lot more ecological benefit is they just have, they've had the time to develop ecological relationships. Plants that just arrived here last year or whatever can be great ecologically as far as like feeding tons of pollinators and stuff. I have a plant that comes from Korea called Dystania that is just an absolute pollinator magnet. When that plant first bloomed in my garden, I saw species of wasps and beetles that I have never seen before. 
But what those plants can't provide is these long established specialist relationships. Yeah. If we don't have a place for those plants that have been here a really long time in our landscapes, then we're going to lose, lose those specialist species and everything's just going to collapse that much faster and that much harder and that much farther. Yeah. And I think that ties into what I wanted to ask about, you know, as we work on these projects and we've talked about climate change a few times at this point, but, you know, with climate change invariably accelerating, which I I don't think anybody listening to this doesn't expect at this point, do you think that pressure will, you know, you were talking about like selection pressure and tightening that funnel. How do you see climate change playing into that funnel, basically? And do you think that uh, will, these plants will make it out? Yes and no, as, as far as these plants, you know, surviving climate change. Where I live, uh, we're at an interesting spot ecologically because uh, I live basically at the interface of the eastern hardwoods and the boreal forest. And I think a lot, a lot of the boreal species are going to be gone from this region in the next 50 to 100 years. So just because they're here now and have been here since the glaciers receded doesn't mean that they're going to be a great choice for, for cultivation or for planting as a, a plant to restore ecosystems. However, we're also at you know, the sort of northeastern limit of, of eastern hardwoods. So there's lots of oaks, there's shagbark hickory that have been here hundreds, thousands of years. And the sort of the wind is is blowing their way and they have a deep gene pool that allows those species to thrive down into georgia carolinas ozarks and that's you know it seemingly where our our climate is headed so plants like pawpaw vice bush plants like that where we're kind of at or near their northern limit i think are kind of good candidates for assisted migration or semi-domestication or total domestication and as sort of quote-unquote new crops, even if a lot of these plants were stewarded by indigenous people and potentially are continue to be stewarded by indigenous people in various parts of the continent. Yeah, I think about this a lot, this idea of like, okay, your climate is changing and like species theoretically can move into these new spaces, moving north oaks and hickories and things like that. But species don't move quickly, and they don't move as quick as climate change is happening. So I think that puts a lot of being the people that have created this mess, it puts the onus on us to help those species migrate and to give those ecologies or that landscape a chance to have a healthy ecology. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at this stage in the game, people who you know, people like me who are planting with a, you know, an eye towards pushing plants out to the public should be planting very broadly to see what works. You know, I, I basically want to try everything and then what, what plants work and what thrives, that's what I propagate for sale. And I think having that, that really deep, diverse gene pool is going to be essential to minimizing the amount of damage done by climate change. Agreed. 
So Aaron, for folks that have enjoyed this conversation, want to hear you talk more, can you uh, plug your podcast again? And if people want to buy plants from you, where can they do that? I would love to. So my podcast is Propaganda by the Seed. You can find it on all your regular podcast platforms and at propagandabytheseed.com. If you want to buy plants from me, you can do that at edgewoodnursery.com. Right now I have seed packets for sale because it's the middle of winter and I'm not sure when this is going to air, but it'll be March. March. Okay. So I'll probably, when this airs, I will also have cuttings and a limited amount of bare root plants. And then as the ground thaws, I'll have a much broader variety of bare root plant material available. Aaron, this has been great. Thanks so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. 